a passage like Matthew 4, and I think one of the first questions or, or thoughts that uh, instantly kind of come into our mind or our thoughts in a room like this where people, uh, most of you, I look out and I know that you've been around here for a little while. So you, you've made some attempt in your life to follow Jesus for more than a couple of weeks. And this reality, this thing that begins to pull at a lot of us, uh, I think all of us in some way have wrestled with this, is, is like, what is the devil? What is evil? What is all of these things? And this is a lot of what Lent shapes and forms in us. We read this passage of Jesus' time in the wilderness, his 40 days of fasting all alone. And this is what Lent is shaped after. Like specifically, Lent oftentimes is called a wilderness season. Lent is technically from Ash Wednesday to Easter 46 days. That is because it's meant to be 40 days and each Sunday is meant to still be a feast day. Sundays are for celebrating to celebrate the Eucharist, to celebrate Christ's coming, and, and to celebrate who we are. And what we do in that and what we know is even in the midst of fasting, even in the midst of the wilderness, what is reminded by those six bonus days is that God is near to us. And even in the grief and the difficulty and the suffering, there's a space to worship as Christians and believers. There's a space to celebrate even when we are in the barren wilderness, the barren times, these Lenten seasons. And so it's 46 days from the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. And so we're invited to see that Jesus' journey is our journey. So how does Jesus get here, right? We, some of you may know the story. You've read Matthew, or you just kind of have a vague uh, remembrance. It's in kids' Bibles, all of these things. Jesus is finally an adult. His ministry, his adult ministry, his kind of public ministry is beginning. There's been private ministry. There's been these other things that he's done. I would like to know more about what happened in those first years of his life and what happened as a teenager and a 20-something. But here we are. We're, we're in this public moment. Matthew 3, John the baptizer's in the wilderness. And he's at the Jordan River. And Jesus goes down to the Jordan River. And he's baptized. There's this moment in that baptism that the Spirit comes, a cloud descends and speaks over Jesus for those listening. And if you were here last week, we talked about the transfiguration up on the mountain. And there's a lot of similar imagery here. There's some stuff added there, as we talked about. But here in this moment, the Spirit speaks over Jesus in this baptismal waters as he is laid low into the Jordan and is raised up. And it is said, this is my son, and who I'm well pleased. And immediately all of the Hebrew people nearby are going, Messiah. Son of man, my son, God's son, all of this language that gets wrapped around this. Bells, alarms, whistles go off. This is the Messiah. This is who we have been waiting for. And this then in Matthew, I talked about this last week and, and again here, we, we're still in Matthew. The way Matthew uses this Greek word then is always to imply this kind of immediacy, like this, this movement. He wants you to link Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 together. He wants you to see how tightly these narratives are connected. He wants you to understand that these two things are supposed to, like, to understand the one, you have to remember the other. And so he's taken and he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's here that in Matthew's narrative, in Matthew's gospel, as he writes the story of Jesus, and we've got to give space for this. Each gospel author is going to write the narrative slightly different. 
That is not to say that they contradict each other. It is the same way that if you were to ask me a story or a question about how a meeting went, I would give you one interpretation of that meeting or of that event, and Anna would give you a completely different. I met with someone recently, and the first question she asked was like, well, how's the baby? Are they doing well? And I was like, I don't know. We talked about work. Like, you know, like this, we just talked about different things. Like, and so our, our focus, our, our, our emphasis are going to be in different places. We understand this. And so each gospel writer is going to do the same thing. Each gospel writer is going to try to tell a different story. Matthew is trying to tell us a story about Jesus' ministry. He wants us to see this. And, and more than just see Jesus' ministry, he wants to make sure that we do not reduce down the stories and the acts of Jesus to be just some character that is in history's past. Matthew wants to make sure as he's about to launch into Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' uh, interactions with the disciples, that we do not see this simply as like, oh, that was some guy that was back then, and he did this thing, and that thing was really cool, and so now we give our lives to him. But he wants us to see that Jesus' ministry is something that we are meant to sort of participate in here and now. That it was an active and ongoing thing throughout his life, and it is something that is active and ongoing throughout our lives. And so he actually bookends a lot of his telling of Jesus' ministry with these two kind of like similar stories in Matthew 4, and then again in, I think it's Matthew 19 is where it ends, and then Matthew will transition to the passion narrative. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and all of that. Because he wants us to see that this, this ministry that Jesus is participating in, that he's doing, is more than just some human being or some divine being, whatever we were trying to make of Jesus at that time and whatever you're trying to make of Jesus at this time. Matthew wants to be clear that to be a Christian is to understand Jesus was not simply a historical figure that lived on the earth and did some cool things and that we now should try to do cool things like him. Jesus' life, his works, his very essence and being was to embody the heart of the kingdom, to be the kingdom, and to be led into these works, to be led into this vocation of his life to bring and unite the world to God, to allow heaven and earth to interact in some way, to commingle, to coexist. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus wants to do, and this is what it means to be a Christian, is to be led into the same work to be led into the same thing. So then when you go to Matthew 5 and you read the Beatitudes, you should understand that what you're being called to is to teach and to live and to participate in a world and to create cultures and societies and little pockets and homes and houses where you operate and function off of those teachings. Not just a mental ascent that you arrive to, not some platitude that you agree with, but that you actually step into this eternal mission that has been happening since the beginning in the fabric of creation and that will continue for eternity's future. And we will always have some role in this and Jesus will always be leading us. And the way to do that, what Matthew wants us to be clear about throughout the entirety of his narrative is that we do that by following Jesus in the way that he did things. This is a subtle kind of, you have to read this more than once to start to scratch at this. But this is what he's saying in Matthew 4. Look at what Jesus did. So Jesus is given this moment where the skies open, the cloud descends, the spirit and the dove. 
and the Spirit speaks over him, the voice of God proclaims, this is my son. And then immediately, the same Spirit that was there speaking over him, the same Spirit that was in the waters of baptism, the same Spirit that allowed him to be laid down and laid low and raised up, is the same Spirit that immediately leads Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness, into the barren lands, that leads Jesus into fasting, into weakness, into difficulty, into suffering. And he does this as a way of sort of letting Jesus know this is what it means to be the Son of God. This is what it means to be the child of God, is to live this different kind of way, to function in this different kind of like reality. And that oftentimes the realities of the Spirit and of the kingdom are to sacrifice and are to embrace weakness, are to embrace struggle. And so Jesus is led. And it's to say that this is going to mark much of Jesus' ministry, which means, dear listener, that it is to mark our ministry and our life and the way that we function and operate as those that would follow God. Because we are named as his children. And it is the Spirit. And it is Matthew saying, this is what it means. And so Jesus comes out of the waters, magical moment, miraculous moment, divine moment, transcendent moment, whatever language you want to use, mythical moment. And he's led into the wilderness. The same Spirit that speaks over him the profound truth and the exaltation is the same Spirit that leads him into the barrenness. This is something we should wrestle with. Something we should deal with in our own lives. What does it mean for us, right? What, what does this look like for us? But oftentimes we struggle with this. And we struggle with a season like Lent. Advent, we can kind of get. All my dreams haven't come true. I got to wait for them. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I got to wait for it. Things could get better. The best is yet to come. And so I'm going to hope for it and believe in it. And like just, you know, whatever it is, like there's enough nostalgia in Advent and in Christmas that we can kind of get into this waiting season. We can embrace it. Lent is much harder for us to embrace. And I think it's because philosophically, just practically, whatever we want to call it, there's a disconnect in our brains a lot of times. And I think it's on this idea of Satan and evil. We don't understand the necessity of what's happening here beyond just like, oh, well, Jesus did it, so we should do it. Jesus' life was the cross, so like our life should look like the cross. Profound point of this, this very vocational element to what Jesus is doing in his ministry is the defeat of evil and of Satan himself. And we struggle with these notions and these ideas. We struggle with what that means. Who is Satan? What is evil? And I think we struggle with a season of Lent because it's very easy for us to sort of like, I just don't really know if that's for today. I don't really know if that's what like, you know, evil, Satan, all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of weird. And if you track like the history of the church, this is interesting. This is, I'm borrowing from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, a sermon he preached almost a decade ago. I could have done it for you, I guess, and just totally 100% robbed his uh, analogies or his, uh, he put them on slides. But in artwork, he said it's really interesting. You look at the first thousand years of church history and art, and Satan is presented as this scaly, clawed-like, very non-human, very, like very other, out there, kind of evil-looking character. 
very much presented as something that is uh, unworldly, otherworldly, whatever language you want to use, uh, very demonic, you would recognize him. Around the year 1000, there's this shift, and there's this way in which Jesus, or Satan starts to get depicted in this story specifically, he tracks the way they get painted, it starts starts to get depicted in this way that we see uh, Satan as kind of almost something good, but something good that's perverted. And the picture he the, the monk is, looks very normal, but he's still got the scaly, clawed feet, like to let you know that there's a subtle amount of evil hidden underneath what looks to be very normal. And, you know, I guess clandestine would be a good word for it, right? Like this just kind of happy whatever. And so... It, it moves. There's kind of this hiddenness. And then the next kind of shift is that Satan becomes this kind of like angelic, evil kind of figure that, you know, and it's all very mythical and it's all very kind of out there and outlandish. And I don't mean to rock your boat too much here, but most of what we understand about heaven and hell is more got to do with uh, Milton and Paradise Lost and Dante and the Inferno than it does to do with the Bible. You kind of see this in the way artwork plays itself out. The Bible is relatively silent and quiet on like what Satan and evil kind of looks like and how it's embodied. It's more, there's not a lot offered. And same is true of like all of the spiritual realm. And so much of, much of our imagery is, is attributed to that. And their imagination and their writing and their creativity is oftentimes attributed to mythologies that were around them. Ancient Greek, Egyptian mythologies kind of get in there and as we start assigning things and attaching things to what we think this is all supposed to look like, how this functions, these cosmic wars and these ideas. And so I think that our tendency in today is to kind of just treat it as such. It's myth, it's narrative, it's uh, fiction. We, as that character has sort of developed and changed and, and moved back and forth in our 21st society, uh, modern-day Birmingham, we just kind of ignore it. Evil's just kind of, ah, eh, you know. We know the pitchforked, red-suited devil that sits on the shoulder across from the harp-playing, halo-wearing angel. Like, that's not Satan. And so then we just kind of assume that Satan's not real, that there is no such thing. But if the primary and initial push of Jesus' ministry is to be pushed into the wilderness to confront evil head-on and to confront Satan and to defeat it, then one must acknowledge that one of the primary aspects of being a Christian is to deal with and acknowledge the realities of evil in our world. I think it's why Lent can feel like a weird season because it's like, what, well, am I supposed to give some things up just to kind of be a better human, help me make better choices? But we begin Lent here because what we're acknowledging and what we're saying is as Jesus entered into the wilderness to do this thing, one of his primary things was to defeat evil head on, to take over those powers, to give us the power and the ability to worship and to stand before God would mean to rob those powers from the devil, from evil. It is to say that the problem we find ourselves in is more than just some unfortunate decisions and some bad actors and some, you know, dumb choices amongst ourselves and leadership. Like it is more than people just not getting it right. 
the problem that we find ourselves in, where we sit and where we exist, east of Eden, on the other side of Paradise Lost, where we find ourselves is more than just a mess of humanity's making, but that there is a force and there is a power and there is a thing behind those selfish decisions. There is a reality that is animating and pushing and promoting that you choose the wrong path, that you move just off of center, that you would question your identity, that you would question the goodness or the authenticity of who God claims to be in the scriptures, that you would move just kind of to this space of like, yeah, that all sounds nice and good, but I don't really believe that. I'm going to pursue this, this other thing. And it kind of gets, you know, morphed into the American dream. Hope uh, is, you know, everything one day will be all right. The liberal idea that everything is up and to the right and that society rests and things will get better and better. And yeah, we, you know, we need Jesus for that because he talked a lot about social justice and these other issues. But we fail to confront the deep need of a season like Lent or acknowledge it because we fail to confront the realities of evil. It's amazing to me, go back and read the history of the New Testament. There's all this uh, war imagery in the New Testament, all this battling, armor, all of these things. And it's always directed towards evil. It's always directed towards the spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle. And a lot of us maybe grew up in some weird, you know, that starts getting conflated with like nationalism at times. You start getting it conflated with these like extreme spiritual warfare, like the devil's the problem everywhere, the devil causes everything all the time, like all this kind of stuff. And, and so we get uncomfortable with it. But this group of people that is writing this, that will, refuses to let these analogies, this way, these metaphors, a uh, way of helping us understand and speak about these truths, is a group of people that is highly uh, considered pacifist. First three, four hundred years of the church uh, would have been very anti-war, anti-capital punishment, anti-like, you know, oppressing others and taking over. It would have been a, people that served, that loved, that cared in this kind of subversive kind of way. And what they're pushing towards yet in their teaching is that there is a war going on. So a group of people that are anti-war are a group of people that are unwilling to abandon the language of war and of battle because they know that this reality, reality of evil is something that we must contend with as people that pursue Jesus. And this is much of the invitation to come into this wilderness, to this season of testing, of temptation, of acknowledging weakness, because what we are acknowledging at the outset is that the problem is bigger than us just getting it right. The problem is bigger than us just being better. The problem is bigger than us just getting the right people in leadership and the right people doing the right things so that the right choices and decisions and laws and all these things can be put into place. There is an evil that must be contended with, and it is Christ and Christ alone that will be victorious over that. We then, as followers of Jesus, spoiler alert, are invited into participating in that as conquerors alongside of him, but it is in the name of Jesus. It is in the power of Jesus alone. 
is not in our works, it is not in our practices, it is not in our just like, if we could just be good enough. There's something else at play here. And then the temptation, I think, is, is to either go into the camp that I already talked about, in which where we talk about how it doesn't really exist, and then when you do that, like, the structure of Christianity can kind of become difficult because why do we need a Christ to defeat something if there's nothing to be defeated? But we're all well acquainted with the opposite side, which is where we overemphasize this. And we create a dualism, good versus evil, everything's a cosmic war, Satan causes everything, and we fail to acknowledge the realities of our own personal involvement in some of these things. I think that the camp that kind of ignores evil is good and right to acknowledge that some of these issues that we see at play are people failing to do the right thing, people failing to do the thing that they're supposed to do. And you can't look at systemic injustice in the world and just chalk it up to, well, you know, Satan's going to do his thing. Satan caused it. Satan made me do it. It's evil. What are you going to do? It's just around. No, we're supposed to, like, engage in these things, have a personal skin in the game. We're supposed to, our, what we do matters, but yet we must acknowledge that, like, we can't work or earn or study or, like, achieve our way out of this mess. There's a merger of the two. And Jesus is calling us to this. And so what we see is Jesus steps out into this. There's three primary ways that evil begins to function. And we miss the point when we make it about what does evil look like? Does evil manifest itself in persons? Does evil look like, you know, Diablo, the video game, or whatever else it might be? You know, Doom, there's all these things where we see Satan, all this stuff, and it's just like, okay, that's maybe what it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know, right? Is it the upside down and the demogorgon? Who knows? But if we make it about that, we miss the importance of understanding that it's insanely personal. And it's spoken to you. The way evil is presented in scriptures again again, even in this passage, there's no focus on, is there some sort of like human-like character? Is there some sort of gargoyle-like character? You know, we don't know. But what we do know is that this character, this power, this force, it speaks. It entices. It knows humanity and its frame quite well. And it knows Jesus. And it's sensual, meaning it, it understands the senses and the physical desires and longings. It's spiritual, meaning that it can quote scripture back to you when you quote scripture to it. Whatever this force is, it's very personal. It's oftentimes presented as something, it seems a dialogue that is internal. And we're called to confront it. Quickly, in this passage, the three ways we primarily see this evil do this thing. Jesus is tempted. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Those of you that fasted from noon or from dinner until three, you're like, yeah, I get it, man. You put bread in front of me and it's pretty hard to turn down. Like, I went a whole 12 hours without eating. I thought I was going to die. Like, we, we, we know pain, we know suffering and temptation well in those moments. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights. Satan comes, the tempter, the deceiver, to test Jesus, to tempt him. And he says to him in that moment, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, do you notice the subtlety there that Matthew and the other authors of Scripture want us to see? It's very similar to what happens in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say that? Jesus has been proclaimed the Son of God. He's had this moment 
He's had this experience. He's had this encounter. Something has happened to him. He has heard God speak. And the first thing that the tempter, the deceiver, the Satan will do to him is call into question the realities of who he is. Are you really the Son of God? Some of the translations translate it, since you're the Son of God, but it's kind of uh, sarcastic, the way I would talk to my children once I've fed up and I'm uh, mad at them. Well, since you're in charge, why don't you go ahead and make dinner? Now, obviously, the rhetorical like, response to that is that they can't, right? Well, okay then, since you... You know, and the problem with that is I know that I'm shaming them in that moment and it's like I'm cutting them. Whether I retro realize it retrospect or in the moment, I'm right? Satan's trying to do the same thing here. Well, since then you're so smart, since you're the son of God, do this thing. And he attacks him in his weakness, his desire. He would be very hungry at this point. And this is another way for us to understand Jesus' humanity. We know he is human. He longs to eat and to put bread into his belly. And so we see that Satan attacks in our weaknesses. The first place that evil will tempt us and attempt to move us in the direction opposite from and to separate us from what God would intend for us is in our weakness. And it is also to call into question our status, who we are, what we are doing, what God has called and named us to be, and then he will call into question God himself, right? And when that fails, as Jesus stands the test, he looks at him and says, it is written. It's a, a powerful way of saying there is truth that is stated and said. Man should not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. And again, the Greek here, the way it's said, there's this exciting kind of joyous, gracious moment in it. Jesus is actually saying that the, God, the word of God is not just this thing that was written that he is quoting, but it is a word that is abundantly and lavishly spoken again and again. This word of God that is given is given in abundance, and you are meant to go to it again and again. It is not a one-time thing, but it is a continuous thing, and you are meant to have it and to cherish it, cherish it and to live by it. So he says, it is written, moves on. The next thing, Satan takes him up higher. So if he can't attack in his weakness, he will attack in strength. Okay then, holy man, knows your Bible. Let's go look at how holy all these things are. And there's actually these three, this holy city, holy hill, holy rock, holy, holy, holy. And in the second temptation. He says, if you believe in God, you have so much faith. Scripture says... Here it is. He lays it out for him. This is what the scripture says. You know the scriptures. I know the scriptures. Here's what it says. And in his strength, in his calling, in his, like, what he knows is, like, I'm, this is me. I have the deep faith that God, my Father, will provide for me, will care for me. He says, okay, then, throw yourself off this, and let's see if the angels really will protect you and make sure that no you know, you don't strike even a stone. This is the first moment where we see and begin to understand that you can actually use and it's necessary to use scripture to understand scripture. Biblical criticism is a good word for it. But you have this, you see that you actually need to understand scripture at times and that it speaks to itself and that there's a picture and Jesus says, 
actually, it's also written that you are not to test. Now, the word temptation that's being used in this passage in Matthew 5 or 4 is oftentimes rendered temptation. Another way to render it would be to test. Sometimes I think test is a better word than temptation because there's this sense in which if I were to sit down with Thomas and I, I would never really, we'd, no one would say that I tempted Thomas to do good. Tempted is usually only used as the way to translate that word when we are talking about a way in which Satan is kind of in the driving seat, where Satan is the subject, Satan tempts, God tests, but oftentimes it's the same word moving back and forth. The idea of it is, is similar into the way that you would maybe uh, do a squat test or a math test or whatever it is. It's, a, it's to understand, is the thing that's supposed to be inside of you there? Has the thing that you've been moving towards or working for, is the character that you have there, as you have surgeries and other things, there's mobility tests to make sure that you're getting back to where you're supposed to be. Those aren't negative things. Ask our poor boy Phineas over here. They are painful things, though. You never know until you have to have a knee surgery how hard or you tear a ligament it is to just lock your knee out straight and that it can cause you to sweat and to clench tightly just to, just to make your legs straight. It's painful. But it's a good thing. It's a test to see, are you doing what you're supposed to be able to do? We are oftentimes test and pain uh, uh, adverse, and it's because the reality of it is our lives are very comfortable as 21st century modern Americans. We've never had to experience much difficulty, and we believe that the path to the good life oftentimes is to be adverse or as far away from pain and suffering as possible. That that is what we, and so we hide death and we hide grief. And Lent is this invitation to say, no, 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 grief and death and pain and suffering are inescapable and they are for everyone. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter your power or position, it's like the line at the DMV. Everybody's got to get in it eventually. And it's going to be a terrible experience no matter who you are. No one can escape it. You must deal with these realities. And Lent is saying, embrace yourself so that when it comes, you know that Christ is good, that God is good, and you are prepared for the suffering. Test yourself. See if you're of what we're doing in these 40 days. This is what's happening to Jesus. Now, the word that gets used when Jesus says we are not to test the word of God, similar, but it's got a slightly different sense to it. It means you are not to manipulate or try to conjure up or try to like manufacture. You are not to sort of do this thing in such a way that it allows you to get your desired ends through trickery. You are not to test the Lord your God. It's the way a parent, imagine a kid, two analogies back to back with children, but here we go. Like imagine a kid that asks mom for something. Mom says no. Out the door, into the other room, bats the eyes. Imagine Evie with the kilos here, you know, she looks at Kyle. Kyle can't, you should hear Kyle talk about Evie, like Max and Eli and Evie, like it's just this different category and Evie's going to know it, right? And it's the way girls do to their dads. I've seen Fiona do it to Grant. Like, you look at him and it's like, but can I, daddy? Anna always said that's all she had to say to her dad is, daddy, she's got whatever she wants right there, it's over. You, that's trickery, that's testing your dad to see, you know, and, and Jesus is saying, and that's different than what is being asked of Jesus in the wilderness in the moment. And he's saying, I'm not supposed to manipulate. I know God is good. 
Your children do that because they know you're good. They know that you love them. And they're using it against you. Jesus is saying, no, that's not actually trusting, using their love and their faithfulness to me against them. That's not trusting them. That's me trying to get what I want. And so he commits. We are called to do the same thing in our strengths and our giftings when the enemy tries to test us and get us to doubt, right? The third temptation that he does is a temptation of his vocation. And he goes up again. It's the third time we see Satan move Jesus up. He says, okay, I couldn't get you in your weakness. I couldn't get you in your strength. Let me get you in your calling, your vocation of who you're meant to be. Let me see if I can convince you what you do is more important than who you are. Let me convince you if I can, let me see if I can convince you that your actions matter more than your simple, faithful existence. And I would say at our age group, at our demographic, and where we find ourselves today, that this is the one we probably most are tempted with, and it's the one that is the most subtle. Are the things we doing, are, that we are doing more important than God himself? The family that we're raising, the degrees that we're getting, the achievements that we're pursuing that are all good and right and are maybe even spoken over us to have. Promises that have been given to us in moments of prayer and of worship. Things that we know are good and that would further the kingdom, that would further the ability for those around us to enjoy the spoils of our labor. But do we pursue those at the cost of pursuing what God would have for us? Jesus is meant to rule over the world of all of creation, and he knows that. He knows that is who he is. And here's the subtlety of Satan's temptation. He's not asking Jesus to permanently sit beneath him. Satan knows that that's not going to happen either way. He's asking Jesus in this one subtle moment to kneel before him briefly, just once, real quick, in what you're longing for and fast instead of you taking the painful, long, slow route that God has laid before you. And whether it is ordering something for Amazon at the cost of someone having to work like a robot that I'm guilty of on a regular basis, or it is the shortcuts that we are tempted to take in parenting or in our careers or in the ministry and the calling that the Lord has given to us, we want instant results. And I think we relate deeply to the third temptation. Just once, just a little thing, and then everything else about my life will be normal. Just one more year of Amazon Prime is what I told myself this past January. Just charge me. I didn't know, you know. Sorry, I'm feeling convicted in this moment. But there's this thing we do that Satan does in that moment to Jesus that tempts him to do the thing that is the work that he's supposed to be doing. The promise that he's already going to get. All three of these are in the garden, but you see this one really easily as well. God was already going to give them the knowledge of good and evil. That was never in question. But he subtly twists it. If you just, one little bite, and then you'll have the knowledge. It's not that God was withholding the knowledge. It was that God wanted them to have the knowledge in the way in which he intended them to. There was a pattern. There was a way he wanted to make sure that they were ready for it, that they were, you know, in the right, right place, right time, that they were submitting to him. This is what Satan does this to us regularly. There's this thing here. 
and we're going to land this plane. That what happens, you see, that I think is profoundly important to us as we journey into this season of Lent together and what we hold on to as we walk in this journey, not just in Lent, but in the rest of our lives as followers of Jesus. Satan takes Jesus up, up, and up. The language in leading up to this, the Spirit leads Jesus down, down, and down. There's this desire in us as human beings to pursue the good, the fantastical, to assume the high points, the achievements, all that God would have for us, and to call it all sorts of things, and to import God's blessing and favor on it, to say, look at me, look at how highly favored and blessed I am because of all of this, all that I've achieved, and, and we hold on to it. And yet what we see in Scripture, the way to combat evil is to hold on to the realities and the trust of God that as he leads us into the mundane, into the ordinary, to the regular, and even all the way to suffering in the cross, is to believe that God is doing something different and better than what we think we need or want. And that somehow in that, we will accomplish the things that we long for and desire because God has placed those in us. But it may not look exactly like we want it to. It may not feel exactly like we think it should feel. It may not mean the house that we had dreamed of, the city we always wanted to go to. It may not mean the degree we thought we were going to get. It may not mean the perfect family, whatever it is. There's a way in which this ordinary thing that the Spirit is calling to us. But here's the promise and the hope in this and the promise to us as we move to the table and the band comes up. In each and every moment, our passage ends with this, that Jesus demands Satan to flee. And as he rested, the angels came, and we're not even going to get into angelology and all of these things in this moment. But they come, they attend to him, and they lift him up. And they bless him. Hebrews is going to promise that the suffered and crucified one that is raised, that it was cursed and put on display, will be lifted up. The cross, the death, will move to resurrection, and through the pain and the suffering of Jesus, he will be lifted up. The path, the way of God, though it feels counterintuitive against uh, everyday wisdom and all of these things, though there is into suffering and into pain, it is also into the joys and the glory and the splendor and the peace and the easiness and all of the things that we could put of the kingdom of God. God is good and faithful to deliver on his promises. He longs and desires that we would live in such a way that is inside those bounds of that kingdom where those promises exist in abundance, where the goodness overflows in a land of milk and honey. He's inviting us into that land here and now, even in the midst of giving up of our lives, giving up in suffering, if we will embrace the way of Jesus, his ministry, if we will embrace the way of the cross. Resurrection is the deal. And you're being invited into that life to experience it, to know it, to taste it, to understand it, even in the wilderness, even in the seasons of Lent. The invitation's on the table. Sundays are for celebrating and feasting. It's always there. 
So as the band plays, I want to invite you to come, take a piece of the bread and the cup, hold on to the elements, go back to your seats, and we'll take. And as you hold those elements, be reminded of this death, this sacrifice, this defeat of something more, and the necessity for us to grip tightly to the one and only who can defeat these things. And as temptation comes, as the testings arise, be reminded that you hold on to the victor. Satan is defeated. He's still deceptive, but he's defeated. And as we live our lives, we can live in such a way that proclaims and puts on to display the glory of the risen and crucified king. The one who has defeated evil and that will rule and reign for eternity. Let us come and live our lives and act out in such a way that it is congruent with this ministry, with this way of walking humbly before God. And let us enjoy the blessings and the joy of all that comes with that. So do this by coming and receiving the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.